Planning a trip to one of the great national parks? L.L. Bean went to the experts at the National Park Foundation to get the inside scoop on which parks are the best to visit in each season. Whether you're looking for outstanding scenery, smaller crowds, or unique activities, L.L. Bean, be an outsider. To check out the full list of recommendations, visit llbean.com explore. Welcome to The Final Four is Not on the Schedule. I'm your host, Eric, alongside with expert analyst Rod. Thanks for joining us on the best MSU basketball podcast featuring an in-depth recruiting, game matchup, and post-game analysis. We dive deep to give you the best tools to enjoy the Spartans and impress your friends and family. Hey, everybody. It's Eric alongside Rod. We're here to do our pregame show for the Purdue Boilermakers as they'll come into the Breslin Center in an unusual Monday afternoon showdown in East Lansing. Uh, before we begin, I just want to thank our Patreon supporters, specifically Draymond Green supporters, Jason Yeager, Brian O'Donnell, Chad Hickey, also Scott Skiles supporters, Michael Bosnick, Jim L., Mark Reynolds, Dan Rankin, Adam Walzak, Doug Robinson, and James Benton, and all our Scott Skiles supporters. You guys are the grease that keeps this show running. We really appreciate it. It's what helps us keep continuing upgrading and our reach for the show. Uh, I'd also encourage you, if you're interested in supporting, you obviously can go to tffinots.com slash support. You can find ways to be a monthly donor or one-time contribution via PayPal or Venmo. And also important thing is if you can, please leave a written review on your podcast player that helps other Spartan fans find our show. It is the reason we are a top 100 or top 50 sometimes podcast of all basketball podcasts in America, which is super unusual for a college, uh, college show, especially for just one team. So I think it's a real testament to Spartan fans and sort of their passion for the sport. And, you know, maybe we're pretty awesome, Rod. I don't know. Maybe that's part of it too. Uh, so let's talk about the game coming up. Purdue is 16 and one, five and one in the big 10. They just had a big, huge blowout uh, win over Nebraska at home. Although Nebraska was missing some starters. They're number five overall in Ken Palm and entered the Monday's game with the number one ranked offense and in terms of efficiency and the number 30 defense. So they are, they've turned things around on defense from last year. Uh, so on offense, they are the number one rebounding team offensively. They're 50th in turnover percentage, so they don't turn over a whole lot. Number 28th in two-point percentage. Can't imagine why, Edie. Number 41st from the free throw line at 75.5%. And they get there a lot with fouling. Uh, the one uh, problem they have, if anything, t- is that their three-point shooting is not great. They only hit about 32.6% from outside the arc, which puts them at a paltry 237th nationally. Defensively, like I said, they're much better than they were the last year where they had a team which I think we both thought was going to be gangbusters, and they just didn't defend anyone, and that's what was their ultimate demise. Uh, they are back to what they're usually are under Matt Painter. They're number 48th against twos, number 40 against threes and 31st in defensive rebounding, which is actually not as good as Michigan state. They're also very good at not fouling. So they're number one in terms of not fouling. So they don't force turnovers, but they never usually are gambling team. That's not sort of Matt Painter's style. And in many ways, I feel like outside of the always a gigantic guy on the inside at offense, these programs and the the style of play is somewhat similar in like just trying to play solid offense and defense uh, without making a you know a lot of risks and there aren't it's not too gimmicky. 
Yeah, there the the general elements can look somewhat similar, but the, but there are there are there are actually um, real distinctions between them. Though one of them you just mentioned, Purdue prioritizes, and it's and it's been this way. Oh, probably about the last eight years or so, where they clearly prioritize not just a center, but a gigantic center. It, it really started with um, the Hammonds kid was the first step because earlier on in um, Painter's tenure, you know, he had his first center when he really got his thing going was a guy named Juwan Johnson. Um, people may remember was in the same group as Etwan Moore, and Robbie Hummel. He was part of that group. Very, very good player. But he wasn't really like these guys they've had in recent vintage. He was 6'10", but very long, very athletic, not one of these aircraft carrier types. Hammonds was the first guy they got who was really of this sort. Then Isaac Haas replaced him. Uh, they had Matt Harms for a period, kind of as a bridge to this more recent period uh, where they had Trevion Williams, who was the small version of this, but still gave them the same kind of had similar strengths and weaknesses. And, and now the most productive of them all is Zach Eady. Um, but that's the thing. It's Tom Izzo has been okay getting very, very big players. I mean, he's had some over his time at Michigan state, but some of the things that Matt Painter is willing to live with because of that, like they both like low post offense, but Matt Painter right. in order to get it is willing to live with a distinct lack of mobility. Tom Izzo would not be able to stand that. I mean, Tom Izzo could not, the guys that they've had playing center at Purdue for the most part are guys that, I'm not going to say they couldn't play at Michigan state because they're clearly very good players, but their guys, Michigan state would never recruit. The one exception to that was Trevion Williams. And, and honestly, mm -hmm. Michigan state fell off that recruitment because they started to have questions about, um, first of all, how, what his commitment was to getting in shape, but kind of relatedly how good a pick and roll defender could he be eventually? And I think that was a legitimate question. He never got to be passable in his time at Purdue and Edie can't move. So it's a different philosophy when it comes to the kind of guy. And that's become such a huge part of what Purdue does now. Really, again, as I say, over about the last eight years, they just perpetually have a guy like this. And it looks like it's going to continue to be that way. You know, if they had, not, I, I saw Matt, uh, I think it was Matt Painter. Maybe it was one of their assistants. Um, I saw a clip the other day where he mentioned, and I remember this, there was a period of time that it looked like Purdue might get Hunter Dickinson. They were really hard in on him. And then Michigan came in, ended up getting him. And so Purdue's fallback plan was this gigantic Canadian kid who hadn't played a lot of basketball named Zach Eady. Uh, but, but it goes to show you, had they landed Dickinson instead, it'd be more or less the same thing. It might be less productive, but you'd have the same strengths generally, and you'd have the same mm -hmm. weaknesses. So there's a type that Painter has settled on that's not 
what Michigan State would do. Um, and that is big. It's also a different offensive approach. Purdue essentially runs motion offense. Um, it's a little different than like a pure motion because they do obviously, as we were just alluding to so much post-up stuff, but, but they basically run motion offense. And that's one of the reasons why they don't really emphasize a pure point guard. The kid they've got this year is probably about as close to that. The freshman Braden Smith is about as close to that as they've had in a long time. But, uh, it's why you don't tend to see Purdue players up near the top of the big 10 assist charts, similar to Wisconsin in that way, they motion offense is going to tend to spread the wealth when it comes to that stuff. Whereas Michigan state is not as set dependent and locked in as some people seem to think that depends based on personnel. There are times that they are more or less, um, wed to that, but they don't run motion stuff. And Michigan State, regardless of whether they're set heavy or kind of in a read-react approach, either way, they put a ton on the point guard shoulders. So very different philosophies there as well. But I understand where you're coming from in a, in a very, let's say, 10,000-feet view. The programs have somewhat similar points of emphasis. They both typically emphasize rebounding. They both emphasize strong positional defense as opposed to trying to force turnovers and trapping and all of that nonsense. Um, so those things are similar, right? Those basic elements. Mm -hmm. But as I say, there are right. some differences. Yeah, you know, the the approach that Purdue has is one that it feels like a throwback, that you have this gigantic, you have a center, you have a post play, right? It's it's very non-traditional for today's game, which I think in some ways gives them an advantage, right? Because it's, it's sort of like playing a 1-3-1 zone or something crazy that you just don't ever really see. And you also don't have a team developed to sort of counter that oftentimes, right? Like that's, in the old days, there'd be lots of people to have, you know, a center they sort of play similar, so you'd be used to seeing this sort of attack. But, here, but here's what's interesting, I, and, and I've never heard anybody speak to this. Maybe someone has, and, and I've just missed it. But when you look around the Big Ten in the last mm, maybe five years or so, does it not seem that there has been a real increase in really big players disproportionately to the rest of the country? Yeah, it does. Yeah, I think so too. And you wonder, is some of that a counter to Purdue? Now, Michigan right, State yeah. has not played that game, but I think a lot of other programs have. Now, it, it may just be coincidence. You know, a guy like Kofi Coburn was available to Illinois, so they went and got him. I actually think his presence changed the way Brad Underwood had to play. And it probably wasn't his, it definitely isn't his ideal way of playing but they did it because they had a chance to get a guy who could impact games that way. You know, Michigan, it's, it's early enough in Juwan Howard's tenure that it's hard to tell. I mean, John Beeline had big men, but he emphasized different things in big men than, than what Hunter Dickinson brains, um, you know, and on a Luca Garza, I mean, there's a lot of guys we could talk about over the 
last five years that sort of fit this mold. I, I, I do think, though, you're, you're, what you just said would seem to imply that, wow, you know, when Purdue gets out there playing teams, especially teams that aren't familiar with what they do, um, it should be a really big advantage because people don't see that very much. But it hasn't really worked out that way. I mean, Matt Painter's had one good run, right. arguably his entire career. Um, you know, it was that team that, that, you know, Carson Edwards was uh, the main guy on in uh, 2019 where they went to the Elite Eight and uh, got held off by Virginia in an all-time classic regional final. Um, but other than that, it hasn't really played out that way for Purdue. Now there was one year where Isaac Haas got hurt and that really, you know, that, that certainly damaged them. Um, but, but by and large, we haven't seen it yet. Will this year be a difference? You know, they had a great non-conference, so you could argue, well, they showed, you know, the people don't really have an answer for, um, for Edie. At this point, um, you know, some of the teams they beat already were very highly regarded teams. We'll see when we get to March. Um, but I, I think that uh, it's an open question right now. What's not an open question is that this has been a very, very good sustained period of basketball for the Purdue program. I mean, you could take out the, the, uh, the COVID year, the year that was entirely affected by COVID where they struggled early, but then pulled it together enough, uh, I believe to make the tournament that year. Um, but they were not great that season. Other than that, we're generally over the last six, seven years, we're talking about Purdue being right there, you know, somewhere in the big 10 title mix. So at least in the league, even if other teams in the league, as we were suggesting have been trying to counter them, They've still been succeeding. And, and here they are again. This was a year where, you know, not a lot of people thought that Purdue would be right in it because they lost so much. But here they are again. They're, they're leading the league. Yeah. Well, and, you know, there's something to be said, too, that the reason that people aren't doing that is because maybe they see that it's not as effective, right? I mean, the game has changed. The rules have changed. The ability of players and what they focus on when they're developing has changed. Probably, you know, the three-point shot is being the most obvious, maybe a little bit more freedom of motion. And so to have a player who can't move very well is such a detriment to you that, you know, maybe unless you have a super elite big that can really, you know, that in that sense, you're really at a, you're at a disadvantage to most teams and they can, or certainly in a situation where you have to win six games in a row, you know, against hard, harder and harder competition, Maybe that's just not as as likely because you have this sort of you know lumbering giant. I, I would I would say this: um, there has never in my lifetime been a bigger divide between the way the college game is played and the way the pro game is played. And I don't just mean the talent level; that's obvious, but stylistically the way it's played. Zach Eady, Dem and other guys too, Dickinson and a bunch of other you know Drew Timmy. It's funny that you can line up like the best four or five centers in America right now. And they're all guys who statistically are dominant players. And yet not a one of them, not one is seen as anything more than in a 
best case scenario, a bit part end of the bench NBA player. Think about that. I mean, Zach Eady is putting up massive numbers. He's the favorite right now for national player of the year, I think. And definitely so in the big 10. And yet it's questionable. I don't know that he'll be drafted. I think he probably will at the back end of the second round. Maybe somebody will take a chance on him, but he's not, he's not going in the first round in the NBA. He just can't do what's what's necessary defensively because he can't move, you know, but in college, you're not punished as consistently for that. You know, um, we saw that last, you know, we're recording this on Saturday night. We saw that last night the game at Illinois, Illinois has a big man in danger who they have to shack with. They got to sag him drop coverage or whatever you want to call it uh, on pick and roll. And Michigan state did punish them for a lot of that game in the mid range, but they couldn't do it quite enough to get over the finish line. Um, in an NBA game, that wouldn't happen. You just have guys feasting, just absolutely destroying you because that pro players won't miss those shots. So right. you can't get away with, I mean, Luca Garza has, it was as dominant a player individually, his last two years, as I can recall in the big 10 for a long while at that, put certainly at that position, you look at the stats and they were unreal over his junior and senior years. He's barely had a cup of coffee in the NBA, you know, so it's just a different game. Um, but in college, you can get away with it. And Matt Painter has figured out that this is a way he's comfortable playing. He likes what that gargantuan player in the middle gives him. And he's going to continue to recruit to it because he is continuing to recruit to it. Even guys lining in by either they've already got or they're recruiting behind Edie. If you're a seven footer or bigger, where else are you going to look? I mean, it becomes yeah, so oh, perpetuating, you know, and it should because, you know, at least at Purdue, okay, you've got a basketball crazy uh, state and, and school. So in the current environment with NIL money, you could actually do pretty well. And you know, you're going to be featured. They're going to give you every chance to be really, really good. Um, putting all that aside, I wanted to touch on the offense and defense for a second before we, we turn to uh, the individuals. So you ran through the numbers offensively. Look, they're, they're number one in the country deficiency. So clearly they've been very, very good. Edie is a big part of that. Not only because he finishes plays inside, but he is a monster on the offensive glass. And that's the, they're number one in the country in offensive rebounding. He's a huge part of it. Not the only guy, but a major part of it. Um, so you're playing Purdue. That's one of the most important things you have to figure out is how do we negate Zach Eady on the offensive glass? And then you see, they don't turn the ball over excessively. They get fouled a lot. Zach Eady's a big part of that too. Uh, and they hit their free throws. They're generally very good. It's a, it's a big positive for them. Actually that a guy like Trevion Williams is not in their mix anymore because he always struggled from the line, you know? Right. So I mean, he's at, I think 75%. So if you follow him, he's probably hitting them. You know, you don't get a, you don't get a break by putting him on the line, but the one thing that's different, and we're going to come back to this because it has potentially a lot of implications for how Michigan state approaches this game strategically, in my opinion, 
we are used to Purdue having this, this combination of elements. They don't run. They, they rarely have a transition game. But what they do is they've got a great low post presence. And then they usually have a bunch of guys who could sit on the arc and kill you from three. And so that always creates this classic dilemma. What do you try to take away? This year's Purdue team to date, at least across the board, statistically, does not have that. They are sub 33% as a team from three. Now, we'll talk about individuals. There are a couple of guys they're young players who are the guys you actually have to really worry about from out there. But by and large, this is not a three-point shooting team on the level that we are used to seeing from Purdue. And so that could have implications as to how Michigan State approaches this. So anyway, we'll return to that. Defensively, they're just solid. And it's really hard. I think about it sometimes. I am still mystified why they were as bad as they were defensively last year, because the yeah. essentially the same cast of characters the year before when the team was okay, they weren't great, was actually much better defensively. And then for some reason, they just fell apart last year. It was the weirdest thing. I still don't have a, other than the fact that some of their key guys like Jaden Ivey and Trevion Williams are, are flawed guys defensively, or they were last year. And they're gone now. Um, but other than that, I, I, I can't point to any reason why. Well, regardless, with some of the core back, but some new guys in the mix as well, they're better. They're much better. There's, there's nothing about them other than maybe shot blocking, where, again, ED shows up as a presence there. There's nothing other than that that they're, I think, spectacular in but they're really good in almost every area, except as you mentioned, they're not going to force turnovers. That's not their game. That's another similarity with Michigan state that neither, neither program looks to kind of trap you. They did that stuff early in painters tenure. They were much more aggressive. And then I'd say about 10 years or so ago, he stopped doing that and they play the way they play now, which is basically pack it in and, concentrate on trying to force you to take a shot that you don't want to take as opposed to trying to force you into mistakes and the turnovers. Yeah. Well, you got to imagine with it, with a, if you're featuring a big, a big man, you're not going to want to be running up and down the court as a lot. Either. Part of it's so, so. part of it's that, but you know, what they used to do was a lot of very aggressive half court trapping with their guards and you could theoretically still do that with a guy like Edie, theoretically, um, because he'd still give you that rim protection, you know, kind of a goalie factor. And, and usually if you're going to play that aggressively in trapping, you want to have a guy who can do that as a backstop. Um, right. But they just haven't done it that way. They've instead shifted to more something more akin to what Michigan State does, where their goal is really to make you use a lot of clock and then force you either to take a shot from a spot on the floor you're not comfortable with or under duress because it's well contested, you know, the stuff that is much more possession to possession solid than anything gambling, you know, and it's worked well for them other than last year for whatever reason, but that they're back to business now. 
So the other question I had with this is, you know, you have a, a large guy who can't move very well and probably he's, well, he's really slow. Is it, is it more advantageous sometimes to play a two, like a two, three zone so he doesn't have to come out as much or is it, I mean, I, I think they generally play man defense. Yeah. Purdue, Purdue's not his own team. They, they just don't, they don't play that way. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, you, you could argue that sometimes, um, that might make sense because you're not forcing that guy to get exposed in pick and roll. Maybe, uh, the way that you are certainly in, in man defense where, okay, you're gonna, you're gonna play, you're gonna play drop coverage after the pick is set that that ball handler is probably going to have an open look. Right. But the problem is zones have their own issues. And so sure. Matt Painter, right. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not a big advocate for zones. I think that it's, it's not to say that it, it it's, it's never effective, but um, I think over the long run, there's a pretty good reason why you don't see zones utilized the way they used to in uh, when I was a kid in the seventies or the eighties or before that. And I think the main reason simply put is the advent of the three point shot, right? Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's too big a weapon and it's too easy to get good looks. Um, if you're, if you're getting zoned, you know, in the days before that shot was instituted. Okay. That's, you know, you could, that's a defensible way to play because, if you're for, if you're able to force teams to take jumpers exclusively or a heavy percentage of the time, well, you'd rather have a team shooting 35% than 40%, right? But, sure. yeah, but yeah, if they're yeah, shooting right. 35% and those shots are counting as three instead of two, <laughs> the math changes. And so yeah, right. that's the main reason why you, you don't see it, you know, um, so I'm not surprised Purdue doesn't approach it that way. I mean, there, there are programs that I guess you'd say, well, they could, they might play some zone occasionally to steal a few possessions here and there, but a steady diet of it, I think, would solve anything. Well, Purdue's coming in uh, number one in the Big Ten at five and one. Michigan State's a game back, um, so this will be obviously a big game. Yep. And why don't we just go through the starters then and get a feel for who's coming into the Breslin Center? First is freshman Braden Smith, six foot guard, averaging 9.8 points a game on 47, 44, and 89 shooting. Uh, also averages five rebounds a game and leads the team in assists with 68 assists to just 30 turnovers, which is, you know, very impressive numbers for a freshman. Yeah, he's he's a really good player. And, um, you know, this is one of those, and and I, I don't, I'm not a disbeliever in recruiting rankings, I think that they, <laughs> they get a lot right, but inevitably, and this is nobody's fault. It's just with so many players, there are going to be kids that slip through the cracks. And that was the case here. What's, what's interesting is when it happens in a state like Indiana, because it's so basketball crazy and there's so many schools recruiting it that you would think it would be less likely to happen there, but here we are. So Braden Smith was, I think maybe a back end of the top 200 recruit. I don't need, I'd have to go look. I don't even know if he had any other high major offers, but supposedly the story goes that Purdue was looking at three or four other kids and 
Smith was appearing in some of these games. And at some point painter said some version of why aren't we recruiting this guy? Because he's better than all the rest of them. And I was Braden <laughs> Smith. And, you know, again, there's certain guys that, uh, you have to have high regard for in terms of their ability to identify talent. And Matt Painter would be among them. If, if Matt, certainly if a, a big man, like, like we talked about, because that's the funny thing. Most of the big men he's had were not highly regarded coming out of high school, you know? Mm-hmm. So if he decides to offer somebody take that seriously, but I think it goes beyond the center spot. Um, if he's going after somebody, that uh and chooses to offer someone that's not really on anybody else's radar at the big 10 level or other high majors look out (laughs) you know and it's (laughs) and there are other guys like this you know he's not the only one but he's definitely one that you know his this purdue team has several guys that were reasonably highly regarded um so it's not a team of nobodies but he's had teams in the past that were not filled with even top 100 guys. They might have a lot of top 150 guys, and yet they're very good. So Braden Smith, the latest example of that, um, he's having a very good season. He seems tough. Uh, he's an Indiana kid, and he plays that way, that stereotype of the Indiana basketball player where he seems to play with a, a high basketball IQ, He's been shooting the ball very well, although I will say not heavy volume to date. People cite that 44%, but it's it's not on a huge volume. I mean, he's taking essentially, I think, about three shots per game from three. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not heavy, heavy shooting. But certainly when he has shot, he's been very efficient. Um, he doesn't make a lot of mistakes um, handling the ball. So that's good. That, the areas that I have question a question mark with him and his backcourt partner, besides the fact that they're freshmen and you figure that at some point they hit a freshman wall because most freshmen do. And when that point comes, uh, the other thing would be defensively. And look, Purdue clearly has been much improved defensively. So those guys have something to do with that. But athletically, this is not a particularly gifted backcourt combination from an athleticism point of view. And so it'll be curious to me if that starts to show up in some of the matchups they see around the league, you know, we'll see. The second guard we'll talk about is Fletcher lawyer, six, four freshman and brother, former Michigan state Spartan foster lawyer. He's averaging 13.2 points a game on 39, 37 and 78 shooting. But he has been hot recently with threes. It's shooting about 50% for the last uh, four or five games. Yeah, the last four games. So since they've gotten back into Big Ten play, he's at 50% from three. But, okay, what does that mean? Does that mean that he's now found his level and he really is this plus 40% guy right now? Or is he on a heater that will eventually um, – cool off you know you don't know yet i think i think in the long run i expect foster lawyer to be a very effective shooter but fletcher, yeah or fletcher i'm sorry but <laughs> yeah it's easy to i do. did expect foster <laughs> to be that too um yeah but in the long run i expect lawyer to be very very good from out there and of course the big advantage he's got over his brother is he's a lot bigger 
So Fletcher is able to get his shot off in ways that Foster couldn't when he was at Michigan State. You know, that's the big difference I see. But again, for, for this game, um, a couple things. One, is this a hot streak that's going to kind of level out? Or has he really found himself after some early inconsistency? And now we're seeing that, oh, he is a plus 40% guy. The other thing is, and this is also true for Smith, when you look at their schedule that they've played to date, they haven't been in anything close to this environment yet. Not even close. The Purdue's true road games, they haven't played like Michigan State's guys just saw what Illinois and Wisconsin are like, right? Purdue has not seen that yet. The toughest road environment they've been in thus far was playing Penn State at the Palestra. Now, I'm not going to say that was nothing. That was certainly tougher than it would have been in State College, but it isn't the Breslin Center. So you wonder anytime a freshman is coming into a situation like this for the first time, how's he going to hold up? It's also a return, you know, it, it's funny because I watched broadcast. I watched yesterday before MSU's game, Purdue was playing Nebraska and I watched a lot of it. And uh, they were, you know, they were talking about Fletcher lawyer, his hometown, Fort Wayne and all that. It's not really his hometown, right? He, he yeah. went his last two years of high school there. So yeah, that's what his diploma says, but he grew up in Clarkston. He was in Clarkston for, I think at least seven or eight years. So he's coming home and he's certainly been at Breslin many, many times while he was in high school um, and Foster was playing at Michigan state. So it's not an unfamiliar environment to him, but I, I guess the reason I'm raising this is you wonder, is there any additional pressure that he feels around that? I don't know. He seems like a pretty cool customer. I have to, I have to give him that. He doesn't seem to get visibly rattled very much. So that bodes well for him. But, you know, everybody's different in these situations. The first time you go through them, they can impact you in ways you didn't expect. So that's something I would watch with both of those guys. As good as they've been, it's their first go around. And this is different than what they've seen to date. Well, certainly Fletcher, he's hit some big shots at the end Absolutely. of games, uh, game winners and stuff, which is very impressive. Yeah, no, he's a, that's what I mean. He's on, he definitely comes across as a cool customer, kind of unflappable and, you know, good for him. I mean, that's a big positive, but my only caveat to that is, all right, let's see it at Breslin with a hostile crowd coming at you. Yeah. And the other question everyone always asks is, you know, here, Foster Lawyer was on Michigan State's team, ended up transferring away, going to Davidson. What was the relationship like with Fletcher and the recruitment? Was Michigan State ever looking at him? Is it why or why not? What What do you know about that? They never really seemed to recruit him very hard. And there are people, there are people that I, I think certainly know much more about that than I do. Um, my assumption was that they had questions about his athleticism. That's my assumption. And they knew he wasn't a point guard, which is what, you know, they thought Foster would be able to become an effective big 10 point guard. That's why they recruited him, even despite his athletic shortcomings and his size shortcomings. Yeah. Fletcher at least has more size, but I have to assume that's why, you know, Michigan state traditionally 
And we've talked about this in regard to that 23 class that bringing in Cohen Carr, Garrick Norman is kind of getting back to the level of athlete that they typically like to have on the wing. But, but generally speaking, if you look over the years at Michigan state, they don't tend to recruit many guys like, like Fletcher lawyer, you know, uh, somebody like Matt McQuaid, for example, Matt McQuaid was a way better athlete than Fletcher lawyer is. They're about the same size and they're both white guys, but they're not the same player and they can both shoot, Yeah, but they were very different athletically. And so I, I have to think that it was that part of his profile that, um, that was part of why Michigan state didn't get involved. But honestly, I don't ever remember. They didn't offer him. And I don't ever remember there being much of an indication that uh, they were considering it. So I have to believe it was the athleticism. But I've honestly, I've never, I've never asked anybody who would really know. That's just my assumption. Sure. Yeah. And you wonder too, on some of them, they got a little spooked by what Foster became and they thought, well, if he's sort of like his brother, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. But, but you know, I think if I remember correctly, I think Fletcher made his decision as a junior. So, you know, yeah, there was some negativity around Foster's play at Michigan state, but again, they never offered him. So it wasn't like MSU had recruited him. And then he said, ah, no, no, thanks. You know, based on how Foster never started the process. Yeah. They never started, you know, even when things were, even when things were fresh for Foster, they never really started with him. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll go into the next player is Ethan Morton. He's a salty six foot five junior averaging 4.1 points a game and 2.8 rebounds a game in 26 minutes. He shoots 31, 25 and 86. Good defender. Uh, He also has 15, 52 assists to just uh, 18 turnovers. Yeah. He's, you know, it's funny. He was a horrendous shooter his freshman year. I mean, just like he had a three point percentage of like 15%, something like that. And that was the knock against him. Like the things that they really liked about him coming out of high school were his size. They thought he had some real defensive versatility, better athlete than you might think looking at him um, and that he was a good passer. He was a good playmaker, but shooting was the knock. And then last year, I, I forgot to look at what his three point shooting numbers were last year, but I know they were substantially improved to the point that I think there was a, a feeling okay, maybe he's developed, maybe he's solved it. Um, and this year he's right back down. He really struggles from three. The other things though, that he does are really important for them. He, he doesn't make mistakes with the ball and he can find people. So you want guys who are capable of passing the ball effectively and not turning it over in the motion offense outside of whoever your nominal point guard is. So they tend to have guys like that. If you think about guys like Dakota Mathias, um, Stefanovic, they have these guys on the wing that still are pretty good passers. He's another version of that. As I say, really good and really versatile defender, but the shooting, the jump shooting is back down. And so that can pose a little bit of a problem, you know, um, they certainly would like to see that tick back up a little bit, but it remains to be seen whether he finds the range anytime soon. Next player who's no longer playing second fiddle is Caleb first, a six ten sophomore averaging 7.2 points a game and 5.2 rebounds a game shooting 55, 35 and 57. Yeah. I, I like him a lot as, as some listeners may recall, Caleb first is a guy. Michigan state really recruited hard and wanted 
Um, I'm trying to think on their current roster. I think he's the only guy now that had an offer from both programs um, and Purdue won it. So credit to them, you know, another a Fort Wayne guy, um, Michigan state. I know at one point felt very good in that recruitment about him, but in the end, he decided to stay at home and he's really good. You know, he was good last year as a freshman on a veteran team it, where it kind of looked like it might be tough for him to get consistent minutes. He forced his way into that rotation. And I think he's playing well this year. Also, they'd like to see the, the jump shooting a little more consistent. I think they feel, and I would agree he's got another level in him. I think he could be a really legit stretch threat as opposed to, you know, whatever he is, a mid thirties guy that he is right now, but he's a versatile player. You know, he's six ten. He kind of, you know, he reminds me of a little bit, just a little bit. I don't take this too far. He reminds me a little bit of somebody like Matt Costello, except I think his shooting his jump shooting is at a better place at an earlier point in his development. But, but the reason I raised Matt Costello is he's big. He's about the same size as Matt was, but like Matt, he can really move, you know, which is great to have at the four to have that flexibility that you've got a guy who you could switch with if you have to, or even if you're not switching is just a good enough athlete to be able to extend out on uh, on stretch force. You know, he can run the floor a little bit, although Purdue doesn't do a ton of that, but he's capable of doing it. Um, and yet he's strong enough that he's effective around the basket. So he's, he's a good player. I like him. and I like his future. I think he's got bigger and better things ahead of him as his career develops. Finally, Zach Eady, seven foot four junior, contender for National Player of the Year, as you mentioned earlier, averaging 21.3 points a game, 13.2 rebounds a game, and two blocks a game, and also shoots 75% from the line, which is about the team's average because he gets the line so often. Shoots 63% from the floor, probably because he's within four or five feet, and um, gets uh, he turns the ball over a little bit, but he seems to be a pretty good passer. Yeah, he's okay. He's, you know, a little over like 2.3 turnovers a game. And that's because a lot of the teams they play do bring help. So they put him in situations. They try to where he has to give the ball up. And, you know, he struggled at times. That's that's one area where they're not as good as they were last year, because last year they had Trevion Williams, who was such a good passer out of the post and could also demand double teams. Edie's not that level of passer, but when you're seven, four, you're generally going to be able to see over a lot of doubling <laughs> everybody. <laughs> so um, look, he's, there are downsides, you know, defensively, the fact that they have to use him in drop coverage means that you can get shot opportunities against Purdue that they really can't do much about, you know, because Edie can't, it's not an option. For, for them to, to hard hedge or feather. They, they don't have options to do anything else with him other than really just let him stay around the basket. Um, but the strengths are many and varied. You know, he does a lot of things really <laughs> well. And it's tough. I mean, he he is a gravitational force, unlike anyone else in college basketball right now, every game that Purdue plays, 
their opponent, the first thing they've got to decide is how are we going to deal with Zach Eady? How are we going to attack him? Right. That's the first thing you've got to do because he changes everything for you as an opponent, you know, cause you just don't see guys this size with that kind of skill. And for Zach Eady, it feels like what's the sort of, if you have to try and keep him out of the, you know, away from the basket, what is his range? Cause I feel like when I see him consistently, when he's inside, like six, seven feet, it's, it's over. But I feel like if you get, if you put him out like 10 feet, you're, you're in much better shape because he can't get, he can't get a whole lot closer. I mean, I haven't, I haven't looked at like a synergy shot chart to know this for certain, but so take this with a few grains of salt, but <laughs> my, my anecdotal impression from watching him is he's reasonably good out to about 10 feet. And when I say reasonably good to 10 feet, I mean, like the, the half hook that he shoots, you know, that right. kind of stuff. I've seen him do that enough that I would say, yeah, that's a reasonable shot for him to take. He doesn't ever take threes. He's not, you don't see him get goaded into, you know, a 15 foot jumper very often. I mean, he, he's also very smart about knowing who he is and playing within that construct. Um, but yeah, he's 10 feet in, I would say you got a problem. So then we'll go into the reserves. We'll start with Mason Gillis, who lost his starting job to Caleb first. He's a six foot eight junior. Uh, he's averaging six points a game on, and 3.7 rebounds a game, shooting 41, 32, and 86. Yeah, you know, right now, I guess first is a better player. Gillis was really good last year. And the big difference I could see in him statistically is he's not shooting the three nearly as well. But, boy, that's a hell of a one-two punch with those guys, yeah. you know. And the fact is they can also use them to particularly first – to get Edie, whatever little bit of rest he gets, he plays a lot. Um, but occasionally they'll want to get him a blow and, and they can use these two guys. And, and one of the other guys will talk about uh, Trey Kaufman Wren as, um, as options there, but Gillis, look, Gillis is a good athlete at the four. Again, gives you a lot of defensive uh, versatility, um, but he just hasn't shot the big negative for him relative to last year. He hasn't shot the ball as well. Next would be Brandon Newman, 6'6 junior, uh, who uh, is uh, averaging 6.9 points a game on 40, 34, and 74 shooting and pulling down 3.2 rebounds a game in 17 minutes. This is a story where I think you have to give the kid and the program some credit uh, because he really, he stuck it out. And, and Painter has, it's a funny thing, like Painter has had, it always looks to me, and I, I'd say the same thing about Greg Gard, and he's had problems too, but it always looks to me from afar that, you know, Painter's got generally pretty good relationships with his team. They buy into what they're doing. You don't see a lot of drama around them during the year, all of that, but he's lost several guys to transfers that just seemed kind of strange to me. Like, like this year's team or off last year's team, rather. You know, Eric Hunter transferred to Butler, and by the way, it hasn't gone well. But, um, you know, it, it, I looked at it initially, I thought, why? You know, he played a lot. He would play a lot, pr probably would have had a shot to be a starter, and he left. And they've had Matt Harms did that to, to go to BYU, which kind of opened the door for Zach Eady. 
Um, so I'm sure there, there aren't a lot of regrets on the Purdue campus around that one right now, but nevertheless, <laughs> um, that happened. And, you know, in the COVID year that looked like it might create a problem. Brandon Newman last year, he, he had a good freshman year. And then last year he got pushed out of the rotation toward the end of the year. There were games he didn't even play. And it would have been very easy for that guy to leave. And, and especially yeah, since absolutely. he's still not starting, but he stuck it out. He's in a significant role off the bench. And so credit to him. And I guess credit to the Purdue coaching staff for keeping him engaged, even through a tough period, you know, um, and they've been, he's been rewarded for it and they've been rewarded for it. He's a very good athlete, probably the best perimeter athlete they've got um, that shows up defensively. He's okay as a shooter, not great, but enough, good enough that, you know, you got to guard him. He's a threat, 34%. Um, but he's providing a nice, uh, he's providing nice depth at uh, uh, all the perimeter spots, you know. So next would be Trey Kaufman Wren, this aforementioned six foot eight Richard freshman. He's shooting uh, 46, 21, and 61, averaging 5.8 points a game and 2.6 rebounds a game in 14 minutes. Yeah, you know, this is an interesting one because he was actually, I believe, rated a little higher than Caleb first. They, they both came in last year, and yet he redshirted. And look, Purdue had a loaded and deep roster last season, so it's not a shock right, that one of yeah. them would have redshirted. But, and he's an in-state kid, too. So it was a big deal when they got him, you know, they beat out, I think Indiana was in that recruitment. There must've been others as well. Um, Michigan state wasn't involved. So I never really followed it that closely, but um, I know he was highly regarded. Any, this is his first year playing. Cause as I say, he redshirted and uh, he hasn't really found himself. I mean, he's certainly helping. Don't get me wrong. And, you know, you put him with first and Gillis, and that's a really nice three-man group that can help you at the four and the five, you know, a little bit at the five to back up Edie and then primarily at the four. But uh, they had viewed him as a multi-skilled kind of guy, and the shooting has not come around yet. It hasn't shown up yet. But decent size, good athletically, you know, there's definitely a lot of promise for the future. And right now he's able to eat up some minutes and help him in a reserve role. Finally, for reserves, David Jenkins, six foot one senior transfer from Utah, averaging 3.3 points a game in 15 minutes, uh, shooting 31, 25, and 64. Yeah, I, you know, when they brought him in, I think there was an expectation in a lot of people's minds that he would be a starter. You know, after they lost, as I say, after they lost Eric Hunter, um, I'm trying to think who else, Stefanovich and Thompson, I think could have come back for an extra year and opted not to. So there were some decisions that you thought, well, okay, they, they might've been able to keep some of these guys and they didn't really keep any of them. They need real help on the perimeter. And so they brought Jenkins in from another power five program in Utah, you know, he does help in that he gives him a veteran presence and he looks to me pretty solid defensively, but the shooting's been subpar. You know, he has not been a, a very consistent threat as a jump shooter. All right. Well, then let's go to their five keys of the game and we'll be right back after this brief message. 
There's no I in team, but there is one in Indeed. And that's the hiring platform that you need to build yours. When you're hiring, you need Indeed. Instead of spending hours on multiple job sites searching for candidates with the right skills, Indeed's a powerful hiring platform that can help you do it all. One of the things I love about Indeed is that it makes hiring all in one place so easy because Indeed does the hard work for you. They show you the candidates whose resumes on Indeed fit your description immediately after you post so you can hire faster. Join more than 3 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. Start hiring now with a $75 sponsored job credit to upgrade your job post at Indeed.com slash BlueWireSports. Offer good for a limited time. Claim your $75 credit now at Indeed.com slash BlueWireSports. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWireSports. And support the show by saying that you heard it on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWireSports. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. So the first key for the keys of the game is Malik Hall. As people know, he twists his ankle, the same ankle that he twisted in the Michigan game uh, at the end of the Illinois game, and he was unable to continue. He sort of bowed out with 7.45 left in the game, and they clearly needed him. We've seen Michigan State with Hall and without Hall. They are a different team. So, you know, that's... (laughs) Certainly key for Michigan State's future, especially in a tough matchup like this one. Yeah, I mean, in this game, he's critical in any game that Michigan State's going to play. We've seen enough. Not that it should have been a surprise to anyone, but we've clearly got enough evidence. <laughs> Michigan State is a different team with Malik Hall, without Malik Hall. Um, you can go as recently as the Illinois game. I think that not having Malik Hall as an option against Matthew Meyer allowed Meyer to go off at a critical juncture in the game, you know? So uh, to be optimistic, now we haven't heard anything yet. And, but I, I will say a couple of things. First, if it was definitively bad news, um, I think I would have heard it by now. Yeah. Because I had, I had his, this is not to toot my own horn. Just I happen to know some people and, um, I heard about the injury before coming out of the Villanova game several days before that became public. Um, That has not, that has not happened here. I haven't heard anything. Now I haven't been going bugging people about it, but usually they would volunteer it. So that's a small, very small, decent sign. Uh, The other thing, well, a couple other things. One, um, I think it was Matt Charbonneau po- uh, tweeted last night that um, he saw somewhere, saw Malik after the game and asked him uh, how he was. And he said he was okay. I think Graham Couch may have tweeted something about it too, that Malik told him uh, I'm, okay, I'm good. So, Solid or something. you know, that might be bravado, but in combination with the, the third thing, which is he never went to the locker room. Um, they didn't have, he wasn't in a boot at any point, either at the game leaving. And you would expect if it was something severe, they would have figured out, they would have done that. Um, that didn't happen. I haven't heard reports today. If he's walking around in a boot, maybe it's changed, but he wasn't then, um, he went, he was up and walking around in every huddle, um, and he went through the handshake line. So 
all of that stuff would tend to point to, at the very least, you would hope, all right, long term, maybe this isn't a big problem. Because that's, that's the biggest thing is you start thinking, he's done for the year, Michigan State is in trouble. You know, he's that important. It would drastically change what I think their ceiling is and, you know, all of that. So I, I, I feel reasonably confident in saying, I don't think that's at stake. Will he play in this game? I don't know. You know, it's, they, they've been, they've been very cautious with the way they've handled injuries with these guys this year. I've felt, and, and that's not a criticism at all. That's just the reality. And so one could argue that might be why we didn't see him again yesterday, that maybe he could have gutted it out, right. but they made a decision consistent with the way they've handled things this season. We're not pushing anything. You tweak something in that area, you're sitting. And we're not going to run any risk of making it worse, you know, possible. Um, so we'll have to see, but it's, it's obviously a big deal. If Michigan state doesn't have him, this becomes uphill sledding. If they've got him and he's reasonably normal. Um, look, I think they've got a great shot. Well, and I, you know, I think the way that the season has turned out for Malik Hall, I've seen reports this before. It lends you to think that this is probably not his last year at Michigan state. Like, unless, I mean, we don't know how the season ends. Like if they have some deep run into the NCAA tournament final four or something like that, then maybe things are different, but I can't imagine that he's satisfied with how the senior year has gone for him and, you know, all the circumstances, I don't know what they are obviously, but it lends you to think that there's a good chance that he may return. We'll park that one. Cause I'm not in the same spot. Good play. I, I'm okay. just, the only thing I would say, <laughs> and I haven't heard anything specific on this. I would just say, cause this comes up a lot cause it's a, it's just how people are. Michigan State's having what I think has been a pretty entertaining and, and largely good season to date thus far. And all people want to talk about is next year at times. Right. It's maddening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely maddening to me. But, okay, we're on the subject, so let's talk about it for a second. The safe assumption that you should always take in these situations is assume that when a guy is a senior, even if he's got eligibility left, he's going to leave. Start from there. That's the starting point because most of the time that's how it's going to be. Okay. You look last year, there would have been lots of arguments for Gabe Brown or especially Marcus Bingham to come back another year, right? NIL money is in the mix. Now Um, you get another year, especially again with Marky, get another year to develop before you become a pro. So you give yourself a chance to continue to get stronger, to continue to fine tune your weaknesses before you're actually evaluated and thrust into that world. Um, Neither one of them opted to do that. And that I'm not saying that negatively. I'm just saying that was it. They were done. So with this year's team, you have two guys in Tyson Walker and Malik Hall who could opt to take a COVID year. So they could come back. Joey Hauser theoretically could do it if I think he would have to submit a petition um, because he had a year affected by um, by medical issues. His his timeline as a as a player is a little bit different, but I believe that's the case that 
he would have a shot if he wanted to pursue a waiver. I right now, my MO is don't expect any of them back. Michigan state, I think has recruited in a way that tells you that's their expectation. What I was told they might do to top this class off in the spring in terms of the kind of player they might look for in the portal also suggested to me, they're not thinking about anybody coming back. Um, so that's where I'm at. I don't have any specifics that lead me to that conclusion other than what I always go in as a default assumption. That said, it seems reasonable. That said, guys, surprises. I did sure, not see right. Miles I mean, Bridges coming back for a second right. year. I was seeing that too. Because yeah. that was not the plan. That much I know. The plan when he was recruited and it was understood by all involved is one year and done to the NBA in the lottery. That was the plan. And he could have done that. He opted not to because his mind changed when he got to East Lansing. Jaron Jackson wanted to come back, almost did, basically had to be forced say, no, you're going because you're going to be a top five pick. You're not going back. Joey Hauser, 12 months ago, would have been a certainty to be done. And he opted to come back. So Michigan State um, would have room, I believe. Let me think about this. So they got 11 right now. You're ready for that's 15. I guess I think they would have room for one of those three guys to come back. Yeah. Cause Whitens will be gone. Um, yeah, maybe two. I'd have to do the math, yeah. but not all yeah. three for, they, for sure. Right. Um, is it possible? Yeah. And, and what you mentioned about Malik could be a factor for all I know. Sure. It could be yeah. that he says, you know what? I didn't have an uninterrupted year and I want that. And I want one more go around before I'm done with college. Um, but I'm not counting on that and I don't expect it. So if it happens, be pleasantly, I'll be pleasantly surprised. I'll speak for myself. Exactly. Yeah. All right. The second key to the game is sort of like the uh, Greek mythology, right? Scylla and uh, Charybdis. You've got a, You've got Zach Eady. How do you defend this guy? Do you double? Do you sink? Do you man him up? And the past Michigan State with Isaac Haas decided to just go man and not maybe dig down occasionally, but for the most part, just try and body him up and let him get his and prevent the three-point shot. So what do you think with this? this is the, This is the big tactical question, I guess. It's, it's the central, in addition to the Malik Hall thing for Michigan State, it is the central strategic question in this game. And normally, if you had asked me this question a month ago, I would have been very confident in my answer. I would have said they're going to go one-on-one in the post with Edie, just as they did last year, just as they've done with other big guys. You mentioned Isaac Haas, Trevion Williams. They've done this over and over and over. And reason being, they have wanted to emphasize limiting good looks from three. Like that's the key thing they don't want to give up. But I wonder if the equation has changed, and there are a couple of reasons why. One is, unlike most of the Purdue teams we've seen 
in recent seasons. This team across the board has not been very good from three. I mean, they're sub 33% from three as a team. They're, I think, number 237 in the country, something yep. like that. Um, they're not good. Now, that doesn't mean they don't have anybody who can hit a shot. They do. We've said lawyers' seasonal numbers are solid. More recently, he's been on a heater. Smith is really good efficiency-wise. Doesn't take a lot of them. So they've got a couple guys you have to worry about regardless. But the fact that as a team, they have not been as good. I mean, there have been years where Purdue's come in. That Isaac Haas group. So you had Haas, who was just a nightmare in the post. And the team was above 40% from three. Yeah. That, that was, you had to make a decision. This one, it's possible that Michigan state might be looking at this and saying, you know what? We're going to live with them shooting threes a little bit. The other thing that gives me pause is watching the way Michigan state defended Michigan. I, uh, God help me. I watched it because I <laughs> wanted the entertainment. I watched the Barstool podcast that Hunter Dickinson is a part of after the Michigan State game. Oh, my I, goodness. I saw a clip. Of, God bless you. I saw a clip of what he had said, and it actually seemed gracious and sane. So I wanted to see if that <laughs> remained consistent, and it largely <laughs> did. I'm not. This is not an apology for Hunter Dickinson. Screw that guy. But what he said that was interesting was he mentioned how Michigan State was frequently bringing extra bodies at him. Either they were bringing a straight double with the foreman or they were digging down and they were mixing up and varying the timing of it. So sometimes on the catch, the double comes or the dig comes. Sometimes they might let him take a power dribble or two and then the double comes. Sometimes the double never came. So the idea was they were keeping him off balance and Michigan state clearly had rules for how they were playing it, but there wasn't a pattern that was discernible for Hunter Dickinson. I didn't discern one watching the game live. I'd have to go back and look at it to see if I could figure out what it was, but he mentioned how it was shocking to him because Michigan state never does that. He's right. Michigan state's history is they play you straight up in the post. They don't send help. They they certainly in the past they will dig down. Yeah. With guards, or, but they don't send, they don't ever send pure double teams. So given these two things, given that this Purdue team is not as proficient overall from three as we're used to seeing, and given that we have just seen them employ a very different strategy than we normally see against the closest facsimile to Edie that there is in the league in Dickinson, maybe the country. Um, it gives me pause and I don't honestly know what I expect to happen. I think it's a fascinating question and how Tom Izzo chooses to approach it is going to be very significant. I know that much, but I don't know what he's going to do. Do you suppose to, I mean, we've seen Carson Cooper now log 12 and then 13 minutes. Do you expect he, him to be the first off the bench to replace Mati Sissoko? I mean, this is assuming Mati does not get I honestly do. I do because this is, unfortunately for Jackson Kohler, this is another game where 
you know, he's not going to be able to do anything in the post against Edie. I mean, not, nobody is one-on-one, but at least the other two guys have a better chance of putting up enough resistance that maybe you get an occasional miss, but Jackson, I don't think is ready for it. And then offensively, I think the problem is Edie's so huge that I don't know that I believe Jackson could get much done offensively in the post against, which is the reason you would play Jackson, right? To get some offense. So yeah, I would be kind of, and the fact that Carson Cooper is coming off two straight good efforts. So, you know, you're going to, unless he just absolutely, you know, screws it up in practice or something, um, I would expect that Carson Cooper probably gets the first call and probably will be the majority guy in terms of minutes in, in a reserve role um, in this game. Yeah. So, yeah, that's what I would, that's what I would expect. The other thing about Carson Cooper that you like, and this is, it's not in my keys, but if you, another thing you can do to impact Edie and it's easier said than done, but if Michigan state can do a really good job on the defensive boards and get into transition and force Edie to go up and down the floor more than he wants, that right, could, right. that could have an impact. He's become pretty good at playing big minutes, but it's in a half court game. If Michigan state and, and here's the thing, Carson Cooper, as we saw in the Illinois game on one play, at least he's got the athleticism to rim run. He and Mahdi both yeah. do. And if they are, if they are dead set on doing that and kind of dragging uh, Zach Eady up and down the floor more than he wants to be, that could have an impact over say the last five, 10 minutes of the game. That's what you're hoping for. There are other ways to tire him out too. You know, making him uh, he's he's gonna he's gonna play drop coverage. So I don't know how much of this they'll be able to get done, but whatever they can do in terms of half court pick and roll stuff to make him move a lot that could help too. But I really think that rim running element, if Michigan State can find a way to get into transition, that could pay dividends too. And that's something Carson Cooper gives you better than Jackson Kohler does right now. I almost feel like in some ways Cooper's even better running than, than Sissoko. I feel like he, the, the limited time he's out there, he's much better heading straight, you know, the straight dives to the basket could be. and the break it. I don't know. We haven't gotten a ton out of Mahdi in the rim running game, but then again, I don't know how much of that is his fault because Michigan State as a team just has not run much. Yeah, so no, it's hard no, to no, tell, no, no. but I, I think they're close. Yeah, I don't think there's a discernible difference between them at this point that you say one is. You know. But but that's a that's a positive for Carson Cooper that because Mahdi yeah. Sissoko oh, yeah. is a good athlete. So for him to be in the same category, that says something. All right, so the number three key to the game are threes. Michigan State went 0 for 7 against Illinois, did not shoot the well well against Michigan from three either. I mean, is this a trend? Is this just something, a momentary blip, you know, whatever? But it's obviously a big part of the offense for Michigan State. To... It is, and they it has to be part of it. And look, credit to Illinois. They sold out to take it away, and they did. And so kudos to them. They pulled it off. I don't think we'll see the same thing from Purdue. And the reason I don't think we'll see it one, I don't think Purdue has the capability to do it. 
we talked about it going into that Illinois game that one of the things that made them good defensively is they have good athletes, but so much length across the board. And so that means on the, you know, on the perimeter, their starting lineup was six, four, six, seven, six, nine at the three perimeter spots. That's massive. Purdue by contrast is six foot six, four, six, five, not the yeah, same right. thing. So I don't think Purdue's capable of taking it away the way that, um, the way that Illinois did. And I also don't think that they'll, they'll necessarily look to try to do that. Um, so Michigan state has to run its stuff and has to be effective from three. I mean, it's a big part of their offensive attack. We all know this. It needs to be back in a big way. I'm not saying they need to shoot 50%, but it's gotta be back in line with what we expect from them. You know, and so to think they get seven or eight in the game, right? Yeah. Ideally. Sure. Yeah. And you'd like to be getting. You know, for this Michigan State team, I would say, you know, somewhere in the high teens to 20 attempts up seems about right. So number four key to the game, which is like nails on a chalkboard to Nate Oates, is the mid-range game. So Michigan State got a lot of mid-range action against Illinois. uh, And then you expect with the same general uh, approach defensively with Edie that they'll have that opportunity again in this game. Those shots are going to be there they got to hit them. They got to take them and they got to make them for a lot of that game yesterday. I thought Michigan state was very effective in how they, how they played that. Um, the last 10 minutes or so it was less effective. Uh, give Illinois some credit for that, but you know, Michigan state also missed some shots. You would think they would make, um, they have to be dialed in. You know, if, if we've, if we're seeing a game where, Walker and Hogard and Aikens are just not hitting the 15 to 18 foot jumper. It's going to be a long day because those shots are going to be there. So they have to take advantage. You know, Purdue, Purdue really can't do anything because by virtue of playing Edie to completely shut that down. So the opportunities will be there. You got to cash in. And finally, the fifth key to the game rebounding. Michigan State had a great rebounding game against Illinois on the defensive end and then really even on the offensive end, which was surprising to us. So, you know, you're not expecting them to get a lot going offensively in this game, but can they keep Edie primarily the one off the boards and forgetting his second, third chance, especially when he's rebounding? He's like, you know, two feet from the basket. Yeah. Illinois is a very good offensive rebounding team, but Purdue is the best of the country. And a big part of the reason they're the best is Zach Edie. So that's job one. How do you keep him from just taking the game over on the offensive glass? Um, That is a major challenge. But look, if there's a team that at least has the statistical profile in this league to suggest that they might just be up to it, it's this team. It's Michigan State. You know, Um, they've done a very, very good job all year and we're great against Illinois until the final few minutes where I think, and Tom Izzo alluded to this in his post game. Um, when Malik went out, he really had to push Joey's minutes and he just felt like Joey lost. He was a little low on gas in the tank. And I would concur with that. Um, I think that big three that Coleman Hawkins hit 
uh, where MSU had fought back to a tie, and then Illinois came right down and hit a three from Hawkins and never looked back. Joey was just late. He didn't have enough gas in the tank to be able to get to him to adequately contest it. Um, but it also showed up in some defensive rebounding by Michigan State. Hawkins had a big putback during that same period of the game. Uh, Michigan State was not giving those up for you know the majority of that contest. It needs to be a similar approach here. So that's the big part of this. At the other end, you know, Purdue's a good defensive rebounding team also. Um, up until last night, I would have said, well, that's really where the discussion begins and ends because, you know, we're not, we're not <laughs> counting on yeah, Michigan right. State doing anything. Michigan State went and got 15 offensive rebounds against Illinois. They pounded them. So does that mean that we've got another gear of horsepower with this Michigan state group that we just haven't seen yet this year and can give them something in that area. I don't know. I'm not counting on it, but I also don't dismiss it at least not yet because we did see it against a team with a lot of size. Um, Michigan state tattooed them. Right. Yeah. And I think Michigan state was coming into the Illinois game was ranked 11th in defensive rebounding. I have to imagine they're, at least that good, if not even better ranking now after that performance. Let me take a quick look to confirm that you would, you would think so given the performance. So many teams under 30%. I mean, I can't remember the last team that got 30% offensive rebounding on them. It's been quite a time, quite a while. They are still at number 11 <laughs> holding strong. <laughs> only, Everyone else is just only number 187 in offensive rebounding, but that number got helped a lot by that Illinois performance. All right. Well, uh, unless you have anything else, I mean, I, I do think I do in some ways think Carson Cooper is and Madi Sissoko. It'll be interesting to see what they do if they can, because they're the ones who are going to be charged with the rebounding and defending Edie, whether there's doubling or, you know, or digging down or whatever, those guys have to stay solid and have to be able to stay on the floor without getting too much foul trouble. That's a, that's another big thing. And, and I don't have it included as a key, but it's worth talking about for a second. You know, we did allude to part of this. Purdue gets to the line a ton, and a big, big part of that is Zach Eady. I think he's he's averaging a little over seven free throw attempts per game. That's a lot. Um, so he again, I, I mentioned he's this gravitational force that just everything ends up concerning him. Purdue, the way Purdue wants to play, the way that the opponent has to deal with them, all of it kind of orbits him. And this is another area where he's a big, big factor. You have to look at it and say, can Michigan State's big men manage to hang in there, defend him adequately, uh, whatever that means, whether they're sending help or whether they're just kind of out there on an island with them and not get in foul trouble. So you know, part of that's going to be the whistle. You would hope that at Breslin, Michigan State would get a favorable whistle and that they'll allow them to play him with some physicality and not go crazy with, with calling fouls. But you don't know. Um, you know, we, we, we talked about the officiating, and I know a lot, of, a lot of Michigan State fans were very upset about the way that game was called last night. And look, I'm not going to defend it and, and claim that it was well officiated. It wasn't. 
but it also was kind of par for the course, what you expect, what you should expect in a road game um, in that building. So <laughs> does the converse apply? Can we hope that officials are going to let Michigan State actually play with some level of physicality? We'll see. You, you certainly hope so. Because Purdue's not a Purdue's not a team you want to be sending to the line a lot. You know, they they shoot free throws well. I know the guy behind me will be uh, not happy with the calls. <laughs> he'll be he'll be yelling at the refs the entire game at how un, uneven it is. And you know, in fairness, you know, I, I I sound much more reasonable here because I have a minute <laughs> to to reflect at the end of a game before we start talking about it. But during right. the course of a game, I'm right there with everybody else that's listening to this and screaming about these calls. So even when <laughs> I'm wrong, I'm still screaming about them. So, you know, I'm not that much saner. It's just I can get a grip maybe a little quicker after us after it's over. You're not sitting behind me anyway. So and I'm not in your ear. All that's right. right. <laughs> well, uh, we'll be back after the game uh, with our with our reaction to the Michigan State-Purdue matchup in a very unusual Monday afternoon time slot. So until next time, the Final Four is on the schedule. Go Green. At Granger, we're for the ones who pay attention to every little detail. The ones who fuss, tinker, and sweat the small stuff. Because you know the tiniest thing can make the biggest difference when it comes to keeping business moving. We get it. We're the same way, offering access to product experts to help you quickly and easily find what you need. So whatever your industry, you know you're always getting professional-grade products. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.